everyone. Welcome to the Scriptures Are Real podcast. This is the podcast where we talk about things that have helped the scriptures become real to us because we help. We think that helps us draw more power out of them and we need all the help we can get. I'm your host, Kerry Mielstein, and I'm thrilled to have back with me uh, one of my first guests and, and uh, one that I hope I'll have frequently. Uh, this is, uh, I call him Andy, but uh, Dr. Andrew Skinner who uh, has been uh, the department chair of ancient scripture, the dean of religious education. He headed up the uh, Neil A. Maxwell Institute. I guess you were over it when it was both farms and uh, the transition to the Neil A. Maxwell Institute for Religious Scholarship at BYU. Uh, has taught at the Jerusalem Center many times, and I was greatly blessed to be there one of those times. Uh, that may have been your last time. I'm not sure. but um, well, I, I think, think we did one, one more time. Yeah. yeah, I think that's right. Um, oh, yeah. And you were. Yeah, I, I do remember that. But uh, anyway, and uh, I've been blessed, so blessed um, to to be uh, a, a friend and a colleague of Andy Skinner. And uh, so thank you for being with us. Thank you. Thank you very much, Kerry. It's really, really is a pleasure and an honor to be able to discuss with you very, very important topics. Obviously, the scriptures mean everything to us. And and uh, grateful for your friendship. Uh, I'm uh, I'm a Carrie Mielstein fan myself. Huh. So maybe maybe we ought to quit the mutual admiration society and get, <laughs> get, to get, our, get at it. Huh? Yeah, well, get to our topic. That sounds good. But I do, do appreciate. I guess I should have mentioned you've been like an editor at the Dead Sea Scrolls Project, and you have degrees in oh. Hebrew and so on. But uh, yeah, okay, we can we can jump into the important stuff now. Uh, but uh, the thing we're hoping to talk about this week uh, is the, there's this uh, several hundred year gap between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. And there are a lot of things that happened during that time period that will help us understand the world of the New Testament as we're now in this kind of phase of uh, preparing ourselves to be able to study the New Testament. We're supposed to be responsible for our own learning. And I think this is a good way to do it, to kind of look for other resources like someone like Dr. Skinner who can help us. Uh, figure out what's happening in between so that we can understand Christ's world. So I'm hoping you'll just walk us through some of the things that we should uh, consider and think about as we uh, get ready for uh, our New Testament study. Well, thank you. Um, I, I'm an old historian, and I have to, to say up front, I think all of us would be hard-pressed to find a more interesting as well as a more important period of history to look at. And so we're talking about roughly 400 BC up to 30 AD, maybe a few years beyond that. But that 400 year period is typically called the intertestamental period, the period between the close of the Old Testament and the beginning of the compilation of books that will form uh, the New Testament. Uh, it's a critical period to know a little something about uh, because it sets the stage, as you said, for our understanding of the New Testament. Uh, it's the period of history that creates the backdrop for the life of Jesus of, of Nazareth, Jesus the Messiah. Uh, it's pivotal uh, that we understand a little bit about the intertestamental period if we want to understand more fully more deeply the life of, uh, of Jesus, our, our Savior. Uh, and it's really a period where we see two fundamental ways of viewing the world 
uh, come crashing head on into each other. And it's like, you know, uh, sending uh, molecules one direction and sending molecules the other direction and these super colliders. And uh, when they uh, collide with one another, the, you know, the, the byproducts are just truly amazing. Well, that's what happens uh, during this historical period. And if so, let me reemphasize, if you really want to understand the life of Jesus Christ, you need to have some familiarity with the intertestamental period. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, it's it's a period uh, in some ways that doesn't uh, readily lend itself uh, to self-explanation. Uh, even archaeologically, I think uh, we have far fewer uh, items of material culture that help us understand the period, as well as far fewer uh, literary items. Uh, uh, items to, to understand, but the ones we do have are absolutely magnificent and absolutely critical. So I, I, I hope I can, uh, I hope I emphasize uh, correctly and, uh, and not with overbearance, but boldly that this really is a critical period to understand uh, really what we're going to be studying for the next year and even beyond that, because it, it provides for us the setting of the New Testament. And it helps us to, to understand, for example, uh, how the Greeks come to play such an important role in, in uh, New Testament society. It helps us understand where uh, the four major sects of Judaism, as they're described by the historian Josephus, where they come from. Uh, it helps us to appreciate uh, the solidification and the development of synagogue Judaism during this uh, period of time. Uh, it is uh, an age where the Jews are actually looking for a Messiah because their vision of the primary purpose of a Messiah is to kick the foreign rulers out of their land and restore again that which, which they had a, a thousand years uh, before during the time of King David. They want this Davidic-like kingdom to be established, and they don't want the Rome meddling in their affairs, and they don't want to, to be under the thumb of either the Greeks or the Romans. And frankly, you know, this is this is the the clash that uh, is going on among the Jews as Jesus, the Messiah, actually appears and is trying to, to help them see that there are even more important things than political and military freedom, namely conquering the greatest enemies of the human family, sin, death, uh, the devil, and hell. All of those those things are are the kind of of uh, things that Jesus really wants his uh, followers to understand. So that's that's my basic introduction uh, to the importance of what we're talking about today. Fantastic. And I, I couldn't uh, agree more. I think that uh, people who listen to this episode will find themselves a number of times as they are doing their New Testament reading saying, oh, that's why that was uh, that way. Uh, I think it'll just, uh, there'll be, this episode will provide a hundred aha moments during the rest of the, the course of Come Follow Me this year. So, Yeah. 
So if, if, we, if we jump back in history to um, this period, beginning between 500 and 400 BC, we see that uh, there are two powers uh, vying for uh, land and for um, opportunities, and that's the Persians and the Greeks. And the Persians decline, uh, and uh, the Greeks uh, reach an ascendancy, and then they begin to decline. And that uh, power vacuum, if you will, is filled by uh, an up-and-coming king, Philip II of Macedonia. And maybe Philip II's greatest contribution is the birth of a son uh, whom he names Alexander. The world will come to know him as Alexander the Great. He wasn't mm -hmm. named Alexander the Great. It's just <laughs> Alexander. He may have self-named. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and maybe yes, just to kind of Alexander the Great. Yeah, but maybe just to kind of help our our audience. So you'll remember that uh, as the Jews come back from the Babylonian exile into uh, to Judah, that it's under Persia, and we have Daniel with uh, you know Darius and Artaxerxes and so on, and we've got um, Haggai and Zechariah and Ezra and Nehemiah, and Malachi are all in that Persian area. So that's that's where we left off in the Old Testament. And then, as, as you said, the, the Persians are declining and the Greeks are coming in and so on. And that gets us to, to Alexander. So just to bridge that little part. And then let's jump in with Alexander the Great. We have a colleague whom I dearly love, uh, Lincoln Blumel, who uh, comes with me to Egypt frequently. And it took him about two or three trips there to say, OK, I guess there were things happening before Alexander the Great. But uh, <laughs> in his mind. The world began with Alexander the Great because so, he studies Greek history, right? So, yeah, uh, but that's that's kind of underscore the importance of Alexander the Great. He is certainly important. He's pivotal. So the the world that uh, Alexander the Great encounters when he reaches his majority, when when he's old enough to take control of things after the assassination of his father, Philip II, uh, is a world in which the last of the prophets has written. Uh, at least the last of the prophets, as we we know uh, yeah. of, and, and we have record uh, of, yeah, record of that's Malachi, and uh, and and so there there may have been others with the gift of prophecy. We just simply don't have any record of them, but we do have some interesting comments by um, the the Jewish leaders, the sort of the intellectuals and the scholars that will eventually become known as the rabbis, the sages. And uh, from uh, later texts, uh, we, we get statements like, uh, with the, the death of Malachi, prophecy ceased, the last of the prophets uh, was gone. And so from this point on, we incline our ear to the sages. And that's, of course, a bit self-serving because they're, these are the rabbis uh, that Jesus encounters that are talking about themselves, how important yeah. they are. So, so this this world uh, that that uh, Alexander the Great encounters sees the end of the Old Testament period uh, with Malachi, and of course, uh, even the Jewish leaders recognize that uh, they have they could have had many more and greater blessings. Uh, had they listened very carefully and done what the prophets had asked them to do. Uh, God had desired that this nation uh, become his particular treasure. 
He mentions that in the book of, of Exodus. And how many times did we read uh, in the Old Testament uh, this past year that God wants his people to be holy, he says, because I'm holy. And right. uh, I want you to do to be like me so that I can uh, give you the great blessings that uh, that that are rightfully yours as the covenant people. And so by rejecting uh, the prophets, including the last of them, Malachi, uh, Israel forfeited the promises of becoming uh, potentially becoming like Enoch's people or Melchizedek's people actually being transferred or translated. Maybe the transfer is on my mind because I, I serve at the, at the missionary training center currently. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, they could have had so many other blessings. And, and what happens then is that uh, Alexander the Great, filling this power vacuum, ends up in the Holy Land, in the land of Palestine. And he uh, begins to conquer huge areas of land that will create one of the largest empires that the world has seen up to that point. There are other large or even larger empires that will happen later on in history, but this is a huge empire. And so uh, Alexander born in 356 BC, he will die in 323 BC, uh, 33 years old. Some people have made comparisons between Alexander and Jesus. And that's and that's great if they help us uh, appreciate the two different approaches to to life. But Alexander's uh, a gift is to conquer, to absorb uh, people, uh, peoples, and then make them part of, uh, I guess, what we would call a uniform culture throughout his domain. And that uniform culture will come to be known as Hellenism or Hellenistic culture. So Alexander the Great is a man who's in love with everything Greek, uh, Greek language, Greek customs, Greek history, uh, Greek traditions. Uh, when Alexander, little Al, was uh, being raised, uh, his father hired a tutor. And the tutor to Alexander the Great was none other than the great philosopher Aristotle. And so... Alexander comes by it honestly. That's the way he's tutored. And uh, interestingly enough, Alexander uh, dies before his tutor, Aristotle does. Uh, Aristotle outlives him by a few years. So uh, Alexander, a man who's, who sleeps, interestingly enough, with a copy of the Iliad under his pillow, but also a dagger, an interesting twist there you know he he loves Greek yeah. ways but he's a military man at heart descriptions uh, well, the, the Iliad has uh, its fair share of uh, daggers and uh, military oh yeah uh, adventures so yeah oh yeah they, they yeah, go hand yeah. in hand so and uh, and uh, you know this is a, if we could see him walking down the street according to uh, the the few descriptions that we have he, we would see tall broad-shouldered very very handsome man muscular and so on um just think of me and, and you've got the, the basic picture <laughs> there right? you go yeah 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 okay well that's everybody knows that's the joke <laughs> so, i might uh, add just uh maybe it's for the gus file but maybe it's helpful for some people when we use the phrase hellenistic 
this comes from how the Greeks referred themselves, uh, right. as, uh, and they don't use the H so in the same way we do, but but Helene or Elaine uh, and so on, it kind, of, kind of tied to Helen. Uh, but anyway, that, that's where that phrase comes from. So we say Hellenistic, but they would think of it, although he's Macedonian, which Greeks and Greek proper, Greece proper would not think of as, as Greece. But certainly Alexander thought of himself yeah. as as Greek. And so when we say Hellenistic, and that is the, the phrase, and that, that's the phrase we should use, but he would have understood that as Greek. He's spreading Greek culture or Hellenistic culture. So they're yeah, the same thing. Right. Hellenistic and Greek are the same thing. The, the Greeks refer to themselves as the Hellenes <clears throat> or the Hellenes. And so Hellenistic culture uh, is everything that uh, is under that umbrella of Greek culture, Greek history, Greek ways, Greek language. Yeah. And, and uh, by 332 BC, uh, Alexander um, is uh, in the Holy Land. He, he conquers Gaza, uh, laying waste to a rebellious outpost of the Egyptians, uh, which is kind of interesting. It seems like Gaza has always been a trouble spot from from almost time immemorial, certainly from the 11th century in Egypt all the way on down to the modern period, uh, which is a completely different subject. But it is interesting to, to note that, that Gaza has always been something of a, of a trouble spot in world history. And so in 332, then Alexander goes to Jerusalem, turns his sights to the capital of uh, the Israelites now mostly referred to as the Jews. Uh, and uh, we studied a lot about the the, the uh, different conquests in the Old Testament period. First, the Assyrians come in and they take away the, the strongest elements of the 10 tribes, as we refer to them, or the king, northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, the, the residue of the people that's left behind then uh, intermarry with people that are imported by the Assyrians, and that gives rise to the Samaritans. Uh, so uh, we have those uh, people uh, up in the north. E everybody else uh, centers their attention on Jerusalem and the temple. And uh, I think by this point in history, everybody in that part of the world is simply referred to as a member of Judah, the kingdom of Judah, the land of Judah. So um, my guess is everybody would just simply refer to them as Jews. And so Alexander the Great uh, heads to Jerusalem and Josephus is, our, is a main source. And he talks about a bloodless conquest where the doors of the city walls of Jerusalem are thrown open to Alexander as a bloodless conquest. And the real significance is that uh, it's Alexander's conquest of Jerusalem and surrounding areas brings Hellenism firsthand to the holy city, to the Jewish people. And, uh, and that lays then the foundation for what will become uh, a point of conflict, but more importantly, a point of, uh, uh, of contact with, uh, with Jewish uh, and Greek ways. Uh, Alexander uh, goes on to other conquests and he ends up dying in 323 BC, but his the domain that he has uh, carved out, the empire that he's created then, 
uh, is divided up among four of his generals and successors. And uh, just as a point of trivia, these four generals are known in Greek as the Odyche. Uh, the three prominent ones, of course, are the Ptolemies. They are uh, largely given the area of Egypt uh, to, uh, you know, to control Egypt and Palestine, as it turns out, originally. And then we have the Seleucids. Seleucus was an important general, and he and his um, uh, followers that come after him are given Syria and Mesopotamia uh, to control and then uh, the Antigonids are, are given Macedonia and areas around there. But the two primary ones are the Ptolemies. Ptolemy I is king of Egypt from about 323, the year of Alexander's death, to about 285. And, and they will come in contact with the Seleucids, who are in Syria and Mesopotamia, and they start clashing. And this is... This is um, actually thought by uh, Old Testament scholars to have uh, been uh, prophesied or alluded to in Daniel chapter 7. So if you remember your study of Daniel chapter 7, uh, you read about uh, the the four beasts uh, who uh, rise up, and these four beasts are uh, interpreted to be the four generals who, who get the area of Alexander the Great's conquests. So uh, we we now are entering this period where um, Greek ways become very appealing to a certain element of the Jewish population in Palestine and the Holy Land. But uh, on the other hand, they become Greek ways, Greek culture become anathema to others uh, who uh, are in Palestine and believe that that's the way that the people of God should should be governed and that they should not, you know, incorporate Greek culture into their lifestyle. Uh, I find that a really interesting point, and you can see evidence of it in different in different communities, Jewish communities from the time period, where some are very much not Greek and some are very Greek. Uh, but that's an age-old question that we are having to address in our own lives right now, is how much do we adopt of the culture around us, and how much do we need to eschew that culture? How much do we need to keep it uh, at arm's or further than arm's length uh, as we try to be people of God as our primary culture? How much is the world around us benign to have that culture, and how much is it harmful? Well, I, I thank you, because I think that that's a really critical point for likening the scriptures to ourselves or likening history to our own circumstances. Uh, points of of contact become points of conflict. Uh, the, the Greeks, for example, they're oriented towards this world. The Jews are oriented otherworldly. Um, the, the Greeks um, are polytheists. The Jews are monotheists. Uh, the Greeks believe that uh, the highest form of virtue is demonstrated or manifested uh, in your devotion to the state, the pursuit of truth, physical beauty. Well, those who are opposed to uh, Hellenistic or Greek culture believe exactly the opposite. 
the highest form of virtue is submitting to God, the one true God, and to obey his law. Uh, the, the Greeks are, are I guess, uh, centered on a democratic uh, kind of uh, political situation. Uh, the, the Jews are a nomocracy or a theocracy. They're their circumstance, their civilization is based on law, the Mosaic law. And so, uh, you know, and then and then there's this idea of what constitutes beauty. And the Greeks love the human form, uh, au naturel, without clothing. Yeah. And that is uh, not the way that, uh, that Orthodox Jews, Orthodox religionists want their society uh, to go. And so they don't even want to picture human draw humans or something as opposed to exactly the, the making exactly. The, the, the nude human the the uh heightened uh the height of what you should look at and depict so so the orthodox religionists begin to view hellenism as polluting the truth of god's will uh god's will communicated by jehovah through revelation found in the holy books the holy text the bible as we would refer to it uh and the Hellenists, those who believe that not only it's okay, but we should embrace uh, mo the modern ways of Hellenistic culture, um, they, they these tensions begin simmering just below the surface. Uh, after the death of uh, Ptolemy the First in 285, uh, the Jewish community in Palestine enjoys um had enjoyed favorable conditions under the Ptolemies, but the Greek, uh, the Seleucids uh, in Syria begin to make attempts to conquer the, the Holy Land. And uh, this inaugurates a period of the so-called Syrian Wars. And so for the next 75 years, this strategically important land, which we call the Holy Land, uh, becomes the tramping ground, if you will, of opposing armies, the Seleucids and the Ptolemies, both, you know, patrons of Alexander the Great, but they they want this bridge, you know, uh, this land bridge to uh, other areas to be part of their domain. And, uh, and this then really brings Hellenism crashing uh, headlong, uh, into uh, to Jewish ways, to Judaism, if we can use that phrase. It's the age-old adage, uh, Jerusalem versus Athens, uh, the classic confrontation between um, faith in one true God and uh, observation of many gods, um, revelation versus reason, otherworldly versus uh, thisworldly. Uh, ultimately, things um, turn against the Ptolemies, and in one of the watershed battles of history, truly one of the watershed battles of history, in 198, the Ptolemies are defeated, soundly defeated, by the Seleucids, uh, and uh, the ruler, the Seleucid ruler named Antiochus III, then Antiochus the Great, as he comes to be known, uh, brings Jerusalem into his domain, and uh, he becomes the power broker in the Near East. Uh, Antiochus III um, 
is um, one who will give some autonomy to uh, the Jews living in the Holy Land. Uh, one of the most pressing needs of the time is to revive some form of a group of scholars, a group of Orthodox scholars called the Sofarim. Uh, we would refer to them as the scribes. And so this uh, this group of, of professionals, they're, they're very religious, but professionally they make their living by copying scriptures uh, and other texts. Uh, they help govern the Holy Land uh, under the reign of Antiochus III. And uh, this governing council of elders, if you will, called in Greek the Gerousia, the, the assembly, was established uh, to help the Aaronic high priest govern, in some way self-govern this area because of the freedom that Antiochus III gives to them. Uh, at the head of, uh, there's there's two factions <laughs> always uh, within this, uh, this group uh, of the assembly, the Gerousia uh, in the Holy Land. At the head of this governing body um, is uh, two pairs of teachers. Uh, and these are, uh, these will become, these will, crystallize, if you will, it will develop into two schools of rabbinic thought in Jesus's day, one headed by um, uh, a famous rabbi named Hillel, and the other headed by a famous rabbi named um, um, Shammai, <laughs> sorry for that uh, senior moment there. But, but, but the important point is to see that uh, that things continue to develop uh, and, and they have some autonomy uh, under the, this first uh, important Seleucid ruler. So the Ptolemies are out, the Seleucids are in, and we have uh, the formal head of politics and religion vested in the, in the Jewish high priest with the assistance of this assembly and the assembly, um, you know, having two different primary viewpoints, one headed by um, a more liberal school and one headed by a more, I guess you'd call it uh, conservative school. Well, as time passes, things deteriorate and uh, Antiochus III's successor, Antiochus IV, sometimes referred to as Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, epiphany meaning uh, in Greek, God manifest, so Antiochus Epiphanes uh, then looks at the Holy Land and he sees that there are, you know, different factions developing in society. And he sees that, uh, that the Orthodox Jewish way of living life in the Holy Land is way different than his way of living life, which is bound up in Hellenistic culture. And so this sets up the classic uh, clash, if you will, um, between um, Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes, and the Orthodox religionists in the Holy Land. Uh, this uh, actually is the setting for the origins of the Jewish holiday of Hanukkah, where Antiochus IV uh, makes it manifest, is, is up front 
in his efforts to destroy Judaism, wants to, to obliterate it, uh, or at least the essential elements of it. And so he enacts a number of different programs, uh, a number of different um, regulations that the Jews must live by. And the final straw is uh, when he comes to Jerusalem and desecrates the Jerusalem temple and sets up an altar uh, for the people to worship at, at, and the altar carries none other than his own image, which, as you pointed out, is anathema, uh, according yeah. to the Mosaic law. And so uh, we've got uh, essentially a war breaking out, uh, and uh, and once one beginning in 175, and then it reaches uh, its apex in 168 when the Jerusalem temple is desecrated and uh, enter our heroes, um, a family known as the family of the Hashmonim or the Hasmonians. And uh, they're headed by um, uh, a, a priest who lives in a town called Modi'in, uh, actually a big sprawling uh, town now in uh, about 20 miles north uh, west of Jerusalem. And he is a, a priest and he has five sons. And so uh, they begin to wage a war of liberation. And this war of liberation takes three years, but finally in the year 165, thereabouts, the temple is retaken uh, by the Hasmoneans. They're, they're also referred to as the Maccabees, and this is the origin of the Maccabees, these Jewish freedom fighters, uh, first by the father and then by um, the five sons. And maybe the most famous of these uh, guerrilla freedom fighters is Judah. Uh, and he, he, he he's becomes, one of those sons. Yeah, he's one of the five sons, Mattathias. And so um, this son uh, is, is viewed as a great hero. Uh, and uh, he's given what first is a nickname, Judah Maccabee, Judah the Maccabee. And there are different theories or views as to what that name means. Um, one of those that, that is kind of in, intriguing is uh, Maccabee is an acronym for who is like God, uh, you know, and, uh, and so he and his brothers then wage this war of liberation. They kick the, the Syrians out. They reestablish the temple to reconsecrate the temple the the near tummy the light the eternal lamp has to be relit and there's only uh, enough oil for it to burn for eight days isn't that right eight days and yeah. and uh, and miraculously then it it burns uh, until more oil can be uh, acquired and consecrated and because the light yeah, I... Say, I think I, I might be wrong on the story, but I think that it took seven days to consecrate the new oil to create and consecrate the new oil. Yeah. And they didn't have they lit it and didn't have enough to to last that seven days. But it miraculously did to into the eighth day. And that's uh, that, that's the miracle is that it, it kept burning even when they didn't have enough. Right. I that yeah. You're exactly right. And so uh, from that point on, uh, 
uh, a new commemoration is inaugurated. And that commemoration is uh, called the Festival of Lights. It actually is uh, taking place uh, this time of year, every year. December is the month when this all happened. And, um, and so we have uh, the Festival of Hanukkah. Uh, and that, uh, and that in the become, New Testament, it's called the feast, or King James Version, it's called the Feast of Dedication. Feast right, of that's Dedication. The, that's the Festival same one. That's Light, Hanukkah. Yeah. Hanukkah. It's all the same. And in yeah. fact, uh, uh, one of the uh, sort of uh, one of the interesting episodes uh, in the life of uh, Jesus and the life of the Savior is recorded in John chapter ten, where he is in Jerusalem. He's he is usually spends most of his time in Galilee, maybe 70 or 80% of his life, which surprises some people, is spent in Galilee and not very much in in Jerusalem. But when he does go to Jerusalem, it uh, it makes headlines. And so yeah. John, uh, John 10 describes Jesus being in Jerusalem uh, at the time of the Feast of Dedication. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, it's during that time that uh, Jesus it seems to me quite clearly articulates the doctrine uh, of theosis, the doctrine of becoming like gods. He quotes the Psalms. I said you were gods, right? Uh, yeah. Indicating that as Latter-day Saints do, that this is a, this is a, an apex of our the theology. It's the very reason that, that our father in heaven put us on this earth is so that we could become like him and like his beloved son, uh, Moses one thirty nine. So that that's a, a, a really a powerful chapter to read, but it has its origins, at least the, uh, the the cultural backdrop of John chapter ten has its origins here in one sixty five uh, B.C. And if you read that sermon carefully and what the Savior's doing, he's drawing on elements of the Feast of Dedication. He's using what's happening as a teaching tool, like he so often does. Exactly. So uh, the Hasmoneans or the, the Maccabees um, saved Judaism. Uh, and I think, I think it's worth uh, noting, if it's okay to interrupt you, Andy, but that sure. uh, it is, I, I mean, really is miraculous that they win. This little group against this large Greek empire that defeated another large Greek empire. I mean, they're, they're that big and that powerful. Uh, and yet, uh, they miraculously carve out this autonomy, and uh, that miracle is something that they will remember for a long time and look for uh, it to, to happen again. Uh, it really does set a number of precedents, the idea that God helped them gain their freedom from an overarching oppressive power uh, will become a, a big part of their cultural memory. Uh, this is the, this is the, I guess, prevailing view, uh, when Jesus is born into the world, that, uh, the anointed one, the Messiah will be a political and military deliverer. Uh, and, uh, and we will, I, I, I want to share a quote in just a minute about, about that, but you're oh, sorry. Did I jump the gun? Wrong. Sorry. No, 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 no. That's, that's, that's great. Uh, because it helps us to uh, appreciate uh, continuing developments in this saga. So we have we have now seen two of the three uh, major political powers that will control 
the Holy Land or the Land of Palestine, as it's colloquially called, uh, during this intertestamental period. <laughs> First was um, the Greeks uh, or Macedonians, Greeks, under Alexander the Great. And then it, it, it will, uh, for a time, Jerusalem and the land surrounding will be controlled by the Hasmoneans. And in fact, uh, Judah Maccabee is actually meets his end while he's uh, fighting this guerrilla warfare, this uh, war of freedom. And so his sons take up the cause. Uh, and what, what we see is uh, eventually uh, one of the brothers of, of Judah Maccabee uh, will solidify uh, independence uh, for the, a, a new Jewish state, a free and independent state. And, uh, and what's really interesting about this, well, I shouldn't say really interesting, it's all interesting, but in, in addition to establishing a free and independent uh, Jewish state, we see that with, uh, with Simon Maccabee, both the political realm and the religious realm are brought together and he controls both. He's, he's not only head of state, he's not only you know head of, of the military, but he's also the high priest. And so he controls um, all of the temple activity, or at least theoretically he does. So we see then the unification of the political military realm and the religious realm, because the high priest is still very, very important. Uh, he, he does not lose uh, his his importance uh, over the years. He's always looked to as the leader. And so we have then um, the, the Maccabees establishing uh, this free and independent state. And uh, and there and uh, Simon Maccabee then is followed by the next great descendant from the house of Hasmon or from the Hasmonean family, and that's John Hyrcanus. And I mention him uh, because he's uh, he's very prominent in the Jewish telling of this part of history, but also because he expands the, the kingdom uh, now ruled over by the, the, the Maccabees, the descendants of, of uh, Mattathias. He expands it to its greatest extent, and he brings uh, under uh, Jewish control uh, an area in the south uh, of the Holy Land called Idumea. And Idumea will be important in just uh, a few short years because that's that's the place where Herod, King Herod, hails from. And we'll get to that in, in just a moment. Uh, I, I wanted to I wanted to mention the fact that uh, that the the group who uh, are very favorably disposed towards Hellenism splinter off from the group that is uh, opposed to Hellenism. And, uh, and in this splintering, we begin to see the formation of what will become known as the four major sects uh, of Judaism. Um, the, those that are, that are adamantly opposed to 
Hellenistic culture, begin to distance themselves from the Maccabees. Curiously enough, it's the Maccabees that bring about this new independent state. But the Maccabees begin to themselves slowly, bit by bit, embrace Hellenistic culture. And this is, uh, you know, the, 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 the Jews who are, who've always, this group of Jews who've always been opposed to uh, Hellenism, they start distancing themselves from the Maccabees. And as a and result- the, the Maccabees seem to have wanted to, and it's this ironic thing, they seem to have wanted, they got independence from these other kings, and then they kind of want to be like these other kings. Yeah, yeah. Right? And that, we, you know, it's ironic, but we all do that. Uh, you, you sort of oppose, the Maccabees oppose uh, Hellenism, and then they move to a position of tolerating Hellenism, and then they seem to move to a posture of embracing, if, if not wholeheartedly, certainly in some important ways, embracing Hellenism. Well, this group of anti-Hellenists in Judaism that's coalesced pretty well uh, eventually become to be known as the Parushim from the Hebrew Parash, uh, which means to separate, you know. Uh, and and so uh, they are the separatists, and they um, they eventually become the Pharisees. That's the word Pharisee derives from the Parushim uh, of uh, of this period. So this is an absolutely critical development. One of, one of the four major, if not the major sect in Judaism during this period. And, and uh, while Josephus mentions the four major sects, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, and the Zealots, we need to realize that, um, that there were, if I can use this term, several denominations, at least 20 different brands of Judaism during this period of time. In fact, in Jesus's day, I think we could probably count uh, between 22 and 24 different sects of Judaism. So it, 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 isn't, it isn't just people divide along four different lines, but rather there are many different ways. And that's important because for a long time, uh, the rise of, uh, of the Christian church looks just like another sect of Judaism, you know, and, and at a certain point, of course, there will be a definitive split where the, the two can no longer embrace each other. Uh, but that's a, a little further down the road historically. So we have, we have the Pharisees developing. Part of those who embraced Hellenism were the aristocrats of Jewish society during this period of time. And they are largely taken from the ranks of the priests. And the priests, of course, uh, look back to Old Testament times, to their illustrious leaders, the high priest uh, uh, Abiathar, and then ultimately Zadok, the priest Zadok, <coughs> during the time of, uh, of David and Solomon. And the name Zadok is proposed by many scholars to be the origin of the word Sadducee. The Zadukim then crystallize and they become known as another 
sect of Judaism as the Sadducees. And they are uh, very much different than the Pharisees. The Pharisees well, the are kind of involved right? because they're a priestly family and they're part of the aristocrats. They're, they're involved with that group. Exactly. So they uh, now at the beginning of this period of independence, uh, this new free and independent state, uh, they they side with, you know, the aristocrats, with the elite, with the priests, the Zedukim or the Sadducees. And the Sadducees do not believe in the same things that the Pharisees believe in. The Pharisees uh, absolutely believe in life after death. Um, they believe in a system of rewards and punishments for deeds done or undone, good or bad deeds. They believe in and what's called the oral tradition. And the oral tradition itself has its own history. Uh, and it depends on, you know, who, who you choose to believe, but um, uh, the, the uh, orthodox representation of the history of the oral law goes all the way back to Mount Sinai. And those, uh, the Pharisees who believe in the oral tradition maintain that when Moses was on Mount Sinai, two laws were revealed. One was the written law or became the written law in the Bible, <clears throat> in the Old Testament, the other was the oral law that was revealed that doesn't get written down, but it helps to interpret the written law. I mean, you know, you're not supposed to light a fire on the Sabbath. How do you interpret that? Well, that that interpretation then comes out of the oral tradition. So two laws, uh, if you follow the party line, right? Now, a scholarly view or views would, would take a different approach to that. And has a lot to do with Ezra, you know, who, re yeah. who reads the law in front of the community and makes sense of it, etc. Anyway, for our purposes, the Pharisees then believe in a bodily resurrection, uh, life after death, rewards and punishments, and the oral law. The Sadducees do not believe in a bodily resurrection, and at least... They maintain uh, um, publicly that their that the oral tradition, the oral law, uh, is uh, is not legitimate. Um, the truth of the matter is that Sadducees do have their own oral tradition. They just you know they don't call it that, and it's not yeah. recognized as such. And the the Sadducees, uh, they 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 say no. Uh, Death is the end. Uh, so uh, one one uh, memory device that helps uh, young people keep in mind the differences is the reason that uh, the Sadducees are sad, you see, is because they don't believe in the resurrection, uh, the bodily resurrection. So th these two major groups that will oppose each other during the lifetime of Jesus then develop during this period of time come out of the guerrilla battle guerrilla warfare that restores the uh, sanctity the holiness to the temple and kicks the Syrians out interestingly enough the parushim the pharisees they they do not remain a monolithic body there are those that break off from the the Pharisees, 
and and in fact we find two two other groups that will play a major role in Judaism of Jesus's day one group called uh, the Essenes and there's a you know a lot of discussion about the origin of the name Essene but basically we're talking about the people that leave Jerusalem they believe uh, everybody's become corrupted the priests as well as the as the Pharisees and they go down and establish a community on the Dead Sea known as the Qumran community or the Dead Sea Scroll community they have their own scriptures they have their own uh, texts that help them uh, prepare for the coming of the messianic age they they don't believe in simply one messiah they have two messiahs and so on. So that's the Essenes, and they leave, and they're down by the Dead Sea. The other group that's a little later in developing or coalescing uh, have the basic Pharisaic theology, <clears throat> but they become rabid nationalists. And because of this uh, development, uh, the establishment of the free and independent state for a while, uh, they believe that that's the way God intended things to be, and and when a new superpower looms on the horizon, they will become rabidly anti-Roman. And, uh, and they, they seem to have uh, developed about the year six. Uh, uh, so we, we now have the zealots on, on the scene. But it, it all comes out of this fascinating period called the intertestamental period. Um, for I guess for the sake of time, let, let me just mention a couple of of uh, of details about the coming uh, of the Romans, uh, and it involves the it involves the the Hasmoneans <clears throat> as uh, as things progress and things move forward based on the freedoms established by Simon Maccabee uh, and uh, solidified by John Hyrcanus, um, the, uh, the Hasmoneans remain in power until uh, there are two men that vie for control of society. Uh, remembering, of course, that, that the Hasmoneans are priests, and so they believe that the that the office of high priest is legitimately maintained in their family line. Uh, but they also uh, continue to conceive of themselves as the great political and, and, uh, and uh, military leaders. So the year 66 uh, is another watershed period because two men. And 66 uh, BC. 66 BC, yeah. critical because two men uh, rise up and uh, and they're in opposition to each other. And they're both uh, descendants of the house of Hasmon. They're both Hasmoneans. Uh, one of them's name is Aristobulus. The other one's name is um, Hyrcanus II. Is that right? Um, my, uh, my memory here may be, uh, may be a little uh, but you, you can check it and then just restate that and, and we can yeah. add it. Yeah, so... Uh, uh, Hyrcanus II is supported by a man named Antipater, the father of the future Herod the Great. <laughs> it's almost like you need a program. Who's on first, who's on second? During this yeah. <clears throat> so 
uh, Hyrcanus II is supported by, by a powerful and influential person uh, who has come to the attention of the Romans, particularly um, Julius Caesar. Uh, unfortunately, Hyrcanus is a weak and incompetent ruler. And those that support him know that, but they can see that they will have a chance to assert their own agenda if they support Hyrcanus because he is weak and incompetent. <clears throat> Make a long story short, uh, civil war breaks out. And the Romans, who uh, are looking very carefully at this, decide that they need to intervene. And the reason I think that the Romans are so interested in a civil war in Palestine is because <clears throat> they have just witnessed the effects of internal conflict in Ro the Roman Republic itself. Uh, civil war in Rome threatened to tear the Roman Republic apart and to destroy the civilization that the Romans had created for the last 500 years. And, uh, and that is why uh, a group of men called the First Triumvirate, uh, I mean, this is, you know, this is an interesting name. It's because it describes basically what it is. Tri meaning three, and uh, you know, vir uh, from the, the word for um, man, uh, warum, so the triumvirate, the three-man group, uh, they're <laughs> interested in bringing calm to the eastern border of the Roman Empire. And, uh, and thus, uh, the, the Romans say, we've, we've got to intervene in this, even though it's a Jewish internal conflict, we have to intervene, because if the, the, this what has been a free and independent state is weakened too much it will invite the parthians into uh, the area right next to our border and we cannot have the parthians establish a base from which to attack the roman republic right. and so uh, that's exactly what happens the romans intervene uh, one of the members of the triumvirate named uh, pompey he marches into Jerusalem 63 BC and effectively ends the autonomous independent Jewish state. And that's what brings Roman control, Roman authority to the Holy Land in 63 BC. Uh, the, the person that we mentioned previously, Antipater, he comes to the notice of Julius Caesar. He does something meritorious. Yeah, Julius is also part of this triumvirate. Along yeah, with Julius Caesar. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, the 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 uh, the incursion by the Romans <clears throat> then uh, leaves everybody devastated. But uh, Herod the Great uh, is very clever, and he sees a way to ingratiate himself uh, with the Romans, and uh, by uh, by thirty seven BC. Uh, he has managed to get Mark Antony to appoint him as um, nominal head of a Jewish government, uh, a, a what you would call a vassal arrangement. Right. 
uh, or, or a client king is another phrase. Client king. And so uh, we have uh, Herod the Great being established <clears throat> uh, as a ruler over the Jews. Uh, but the story doesn't end there because uh, Mark Anthony runs afoul of another powerful ruler named um, uh, Octavian. And Octavian is the great grand nephew of Julius Caesar. And uh, we don't need to go into all the details, but uh, basically uh, Mark Antony uh, finds himself in opposition to Octavian. And the two then begin an internal conflict, a Roman internal conflict, uh, the Battle of Actium, 31 or 30 BC, then sees uh, Octavian uh, come off conqueror. Uh, Mark Antony, uh, who has been having uh, a liaison with, uh, with Cleopatra in Egypt, uh, they commit suicide and this leaves Octavian then pretty much the sole ruler of the old Roman Republic. And the fact that he is a he is <clears throat> smart, uh, he is uh, more than smart. He's clever. He is a great uh, strategist. <clears throat> but he also recognizes that the old system of the republic won't work. And what he does is he uh, he takes control of the Republic, but then marches into the Senate, the Roman Senate, and uh, makes it seem like he's giving back power that, and that he is one among equal. And, uh, and this has the effect then of the, the Senate confirming him as first citizen and as the August one. And hence uh, he uh, is also known by the name of Caesar Augustus. And he will officially become uh, head of the Imperium uh, in 27 BC. Essentially, he becomes emperor, if you will, in 27 BC, and he'll rule up to 14 AD. So that critical period, which sees the birth of John the Baptist as a forerunner and the birth of Jesus as the Messiah, their early years play out under the authority of Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus or Octavian then is replaced by um, a series of um, venal, um, greedy, uh, incompetent, and in one case, uh, I think truly uh, mentally ill uh, rulers, uh, and, uh, and one that uh, that uh, is viewed kind of with great. Uh, not empathy. He's he, he's viewed as a pathetic figure, mm. and and so he meets his end, and that's of course um, Claudius. Caligula is the one that's uh, just absolutely nuts. Uh, he, Although I think Tiberius has his fair share of some. Yeah, ty, Tiberius problems, does, but... has some serious moral problems, you know. Yeah. And, and I think he has. Some he's the one that follows up. But uh, Caligula, he's just, uh, he's nuts. He's the yeah. one that invites his favorite horse to dine at the royal yeah. table and makes him uh, a, a leader 
yeah. in, in Roman government. Anyway, all of that is to say that out of this, out of this period uh, where Hellenism crashes headlong into Orthodox uh, Israelite slash Jewish beliefs comes the developments that form the backdrop for the ministry of John the Baptist and Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, and uh, and we and then we then see further developments articulated in the New Testament about the antagonism between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Paul describes that uh, his experience with them in the Roman Senate. Uh, for a while, the Sadducees predominate. The head of the of the Jewish group that we first mentioned, the Gerousia evolves into what's known as the Sanhedrin, Sanhedrion, the, the, those that, that gather uh, to direct the affairs of, of uh, the Jewish people. Um, it's, uh, this is the period when um, the synagogue increases in importance in society. And uh, when the temple is destroyed in 70 AD, it's the synagogue that provides the gathering place for those that have survived the first Roman war, the first Jewish Roman war in, uh, in uh, 66 AD. So all of that then part of this incredibly complex, but enormously interesting period uh, that uh, helps us to appreciate the life of Jesus of Nazareth. So that's my uh, very brief, uh, it didn't sound very brief, but it is a, <laughs> It is a, a brief introduction to this period because there are uh, there are so many other side canyons that one could look at. And if I were a young and budding historian, I think I would encourage. Uh, um, uh, well, if if I were mentoring young budding historians, I would encourage them to uh, look at this period. It, it does take some uh, preparation. You have to know some languages, Greek and Hebrew, Aramaic, uh, Latin. Uh, but it is such an, a rewarding period, plus the fact that you need to study the life of Jesus and how he interacts with all of these uh, different historical threads and groups of people that develop not very many years ahead of him. That's fascinating. I think it is just what we needed this week and and will pay dividends throughout the entire year uh just wonderful fascinating stuff and as you said uh it, it takes a while and yet you could do a semester on this so it's it's brief compared to what uh, would really do it justice but but really a helpful synopsis and i i hope uh, i think people if they'll try and, and remember even just a part of this that it'll they'll uh find lots of aha moments ahead of them so thank you so much andy Thank you. Uh, th and thanks for keeping us uh, on track uh, with the details that, uh, that, that, that are at your disposal. I think our audience will, will be greatly rewarded by, by listening. Well, I hope so as well. So bless you and, and bless our entire audience. We, we uh, believe that uh, this really can help the New Testament come to life for us and the life of our Savior and what could be better than that. So. So thank you, and uh, we hope you uh, just have a wonderful holiday season.